With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Forensic Psychology is a podcast that provides an illuminating window into the workings of the criminal mind. Now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome back, everyone. Well, we have a great guest today, Michael Szynski. He's a retired homicide detective at the city of Seattle, and he's got a fabulous book I highly recommend called Seattle's Jungle Killer. It's going to be a wild story, folks, so hang tight. He's a true crime author. You can see the book right there. There it is. And you're going to be able to access that anywhere, I'm assuming. But let's welcome Michael to the show. We'll find out more about it. Welcome, Michael. Welcome. Thank you very much, Doctor. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you for being here. Uh, Michael, they can get your book anywhere, correct? Amazon anywhere? It's uh, only on Amazon right now. Okay. So perfect. Seattle's Jungle Killer, folks. I highly recommend it. It's a really fascinating story. We're going to find out more about it today. Of course, we're only going to hit the tip of the iceberg. We're not going to get everything. Uh, there's a lot more in the book, but let's see what we find out. So, Michael, start us off. What's going on here? Oh, I'm just kind of chilling. I'm happily retired. And... Um... My book, uh, doing some work on my, my book and writing, writing another book also. And uh, oh, wow. I, well, my plan was to write uh, uh, fiction to nonfiction, fiction to nonfiction, balance back and forth. People ask me and all the time about when's my next book, uh, which murder is going to be. Because I was a cold case detective, as you know, for many years. And I worked, um, I convicted seven serial murderers, and, which is... So someone told me as like one of the you know the leading detectives that right, convicted that many guys. I just yeah. had to be in the right place at the right time. It wasn't that anything that was a detective? <laughs> no. They're just coming out, you know, when the most of yeah, cold cases, uh, DNA cases were um, were solved for murders that happened before 2020 and as old as you know 1960. So let's get started with the Seattle Jungle Killer or, or Chili Willie. He's got like three different names. The Seattle Shoelace Slasher, Chili Willie. You can look these up. So who is this guy? Um, Chili uh, was from back east. I forgot which city he was in. And uh, just drifted drifted over to Seattle. And um, then he, he would start his murders in the 90s that we know of. And uh, what he did a bunch of rapes also, uh, and big strong guy, good looking man, um, but complete a complete sociopath. And uh, it created it created quite a scare here in Seattle for a short time. It took me about a year and a half to find him. A year and a half, wow. Yeah, well, it took about a year and a half. It was in 1997. Uh, 
September 12th, I think is when the Mike got called the first the first murder. Okay. And, uh, that was Denise Harris? Yeah, Denise Harris, yes. And no relation to him. And uh, that's when we first looked at the he had his signature. A lot of these uh, serial killers have a signature. And his was using the, this, the victim's shoelaces to tie them up. But he tied them up usually after they were murdered. Because when after I first, they were murdered? After they murdered, yeah. He was, it was just something he would do. He'd get into like a trance-like state. And uh, Did he rape him after as well? Was he a necrophilia? No, no, no. He was in a... He would have sex with them, but like he told me, he goes, I, I, I didn't rape any of them girls. They gave it to me. And he's right. They did. Because they're they're they going to do it to get the drugs. And then after that, then he had the reason why to kill them. He'd, he'd strangle them, uh, tie them up with their shoelaces. And he'd be like in a trance-like state when he'd be telling me this. All of a sudden, his voice would get real deep. And he says, you know, in his hands, he'd be manipulating his hands. I had been a waist chain. And he's manipulating his hand, putting his hands like around the throat and talking. And they'd be, you know, saying things to me like, you don't have to do this. He says, oh, you just shut up, bitch. I'll tell you what, and you can talk, you know. And he'd strangle him and uh, he just was completely, completely friggin' nuts. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like, like completely, it. Completely nuts. And so, but that was his signature was tying them up with the shoelaces and every one of the people we found, they had their, they were tied up with their shoelaces. They had either a, a brassiere or a, a belt around their throat and he gagged them also, but it was always the shoelaces. And so it sounds like he was, he, he manipulated them to come to where he was. And then he used, he coerced them into sex. He, so he didn't, didn't forcefully do this. Did he have force with them? Did he force them to have sex physically or did he actually nope. just psychologically manipulate them? It sounds like. Nope, he, that was the part of the deal. They wanted to, they wanted some of his crack cocaine or, and uh, so they go to his place they call the jungle and a place right off of, uh, right next to downtown here. And there was a lot of heavy foliage and uh, transient camps there. And like he told me, I said, why'd you bring to the jungle, Chili? It's because they can't hear you scream. Uh -huh. it literally, when you'd be out there, you was right next to downtown, right next to the uh, I-5 freeway. It was so loud, the cars going by there, we'd be talking loud for each other, you know, here. But it was also very, uh, say, very woodsy. And um, but yeah, they couldn't hear him scream. And he'd have his way, he'd have sex with them, and they'd have some drugs. And then he would, he'd call it, then I'd steal on them, turn, hit them, and he was a big, strong guy. And then uh, when he, then he'd strangle them, then, then, then he would tie them up um, afterwards. And uh, so we found Denise, the first one, when I'm looking at her on the ground, her hands are about this far apart. I don't know if you can see the ground. Sure. And I'm looking and I'm wondering, I'm asking myself, why do you tie somebody up anyway? To restrict their movement, right? Sure. They're gonna be like this in front of you or like, you know, behind their back. But I'm thinking, what, do you do it to carry them or something? Why would you keep somebody, their hands that far apart? But that's, he'd be in a trance-like state, tying them up, pulling the shoelaces out. And before I forget this, uh, the last girl that he killed, um, Olivia Smith, he that got behind her. right? Yeah, he got behind her. And uh, 
he pulls a knife out and she starts fighting. She pulls a knife out and she cuts his hand really bad across thing. And when we're looking at the, we're watching, looking at, we're at the scene, looking at the, 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 the wounds on her, he slashed her throat, stabbed her numerous times in the chest, and then also stabbed her in the buttocks. You know, very slight superficial type wounds. And um, why would somebody do that? And we've, then we found a mixture of his blood there also. But it was like 12 degrees outside. And uh, it was my, my turn up later on my partner's case, Cloyd Steiger. And um, looking at that, I was thinking, well, why would somebody stab like that? Then her shoelaces, her shoes were off her and the shoelaces were just partially They killed off. the individual he in here. He so strangled her, it looks like, in the van. Then he drove again. It looks like he dumped her body in a nearby riverbed. So he has three different locations. I guess this is another sign of an organized killer. You have a one place of contact, which is the beginning. The middle is where they commit the murder. And in the end is where they place the body. These are all important cues for investigators and homicides because they want to know where this is. They want to know the sequence of events so they can be able to track them better. Track them better. So either you find out from the beginning or the end or both to be able to help you what's going on, to see what's going on. He was briefly considered a suspect in her disappearance, but no charges were ever brought against him, and Burleigh's remains would remain hidden for 30 years. It would be almost a decade before Kibbe is known to have killed again. Doesn't mean he didn't, just was known to have killed again. His next known victim would be Laura Hedick, who sometimes picked up sex work in order to obtain money for drugs. On October, on April 21st, she was seen getting into the car of a man in his 50s and never was seen again. Her badly body decomposed remains were found that off of September, were found that September off of Interstate 5, southeast of Sacramento. Odd side shapes had been cut out of the tank top she was wearing before it had been used to strangle to her death. This again. It was like a, a signature. She wasn't the only one. By then, other bodies had begun springing up along the highway that runs the length of West Coast. Kibbe's thirst for sexual violence and bloodshed only increased. He was striked twice in July of that year. Who knows what could have been the triggering event that caused it. On the third, he abducted 29-year-old Barbara Ann Scott before killing her and dumping her body along a stretch of a road in the Contra Costa. His next victim was Stephanie Brown, 19, who was abducted on July 15th. Police would find her car abandoned along I-5 before finding her body in a drainage ditch. So this is another ending, right? A different location for the murder. I mean, the location for the body dumping. Right next to... Uh, they call it a dump site. Like the other victims, she had been raped and strangled and reported that portions of her hair had been cut off with scissors this time. A month later, on August 17, 26-year-old Charmaine Sabra was driving with her mother when her car broke down along I-5. A good Samaritan pulled over and offered to take one of them to call for help, but he only had one for one in his car. Charmaine got in the passenger seat and was never seen again until a hunter discovered her remains three, main, three months later. In the same M.O., sexual abuse, strangulation, and her clothing cut in portions. Fearing they had a serial killer on their hands, police began keeping an eye on Kibby's hunting I-5 ground, sometimes deploying undercover female officers to pose as broken-down motorists. Witnesses had described the killer as a middle-aged white man with a large nose. In the midst of their operation, Kibby was stopped on a routine traffic violation. 
Officers were struck by how much he resembled the composite sketch of the suspected I-5 strangler and photographed his car according to Henderson's book on trace evidence. He was questioned by police but released without any charges. Before the year was out, Kibbe would claim another victim, Kathleen Kelly Quinones. In September 1987, and you have to understand too, folks, this is about 40 years ago. The communication between departments is very limited, especially between federal and local, uh, and the local locals even limited. In September 1987, Kibbe was finally arrested after he tried to abduct a sex worker in downtown Sacramento. After taking him into custody, police searched his car and found evidence which linked him to the I-5 strangler killings. Beautiful Seattle was beautiful. Believing they have found a killer and wanting to keep him off the streets, authorities tried Kibbe on charges of battery and solicitation. He was convicted and sentenced to eight months in jail. Kibbe was first brought to trial for the murder of Darcy Frankenpole, 17, a runaway whose body had been found in 1987. As we noticed with Kibbe, and like other serial killers, such as... Um, Edmund Kemper, or uh, Dahmer, or Jerry, what was his name, not Jerry, yeah, Jerry Burdos. These individuals had trophies, these individuals had souvenirs. A trophy is, an is, an is in essence a souvenir in the context of violent behavior and murder. Keeping a part of that victim as a trophy represents power over that individual. When the offender keeps this kind of souvenir, it serves as a way to preserve the memory of the victim. So unfortunately, it's a... It's a perverse yeah, nostalgia and the experience of his or her death. The most common trophies tend to be body parts, but also include photographs of the crime scenes. We've seen other serial killers who did that. And jewelry or clothing. Offenders use the trophies as memorabilia, but also to reenact their fantasies. They often well, masturbate or use the trophies as props and sexual acts. Their exaggerated fear of rejection is quelled in front of an inanimate trophy. Ritualistic trophy taking as is found. Um, with serial um, offenders acts as a signature. The so the cutting of these shapes of the clothes um, is a signature. Yeah, it's similar to an MO, right? A similar act which ritualistically performed, a similar act ritualistically performed in virtually all crimes of one offender, which is what an MO is. Yet it is an act that is not necessary to complete the crime. One of the things for collecting, one of the motivations is uh, extension of the self, social finding relating to others, preserving history and addiction and a compulsion, is what some studies will say, is why they collect these things. The acquisition of sexual trophies, even in the most deranged individuals, can be placed within the motivational typology that such individuals clearly have a passion for what they do and the behaviors and extension of themselves to some individuals maybe even be a compulsion or an addiction. If you enjoy these type of analysis, you can go ahead and go to our Forensic Psychology podcast if you're listening to this on our Crime Watch podcast. If you want to learn about crimes of the day, what's happening around the U.S., you can go to Crime Watch Daily. Thanks for listening, everybody. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think now in regards to serial killers. We know there's, there's different things they do. One of the things uh, we said we tied them up. You raped them. We know that. He seems to be following a similar MO, which is usually homeless or transients because they're not identified that easily. People don't notice them missing, unfortunately, right. in that jungle area too, which is another common tactic too, because he, nobody's gonna go looking in there for a long time if they ever do. And no one's gonna report a lot of these people missing. Um, you know, they all have, they usually have warrants, you know, they're their street, they, they had a dangerous lifestyle anyway. Any, any, well, any prostitute does have a dangerous lifestyle. 
especially these street ones um, that they're taking this type of using those type of drugs. Um, it was nobody's going to report them missing for quite a while. Denise Harris, she I had to go talk to her um, boyfriend and interviewed him because I didn't know if he was a suspect or not. So we go to her house, me and my partner, my late partner, Dick Gagden, who's passed away. Um, knock on the door and uh, tell him who we are and that. And he just looks at me and he says, she's dead, isn't she? Whoa. Um, yes, she is. And so he goes, come on in. So he gives the whole story and uh, she'd come home and uh, she, was, she was a school teacher at one point, second oh, wow. grade. And, uh, but then she had a drug problem oh. and um, good looking woman. Um, but she liked to, to she started drinking, get drunk and then go start hanging on the bars, getting crack cocaine and then just really s selling herself, not for money, but just for the drugs. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, and cause once I'm looking at them, cause I'm looking at her when I, when I, we found her body and some things, what's this woman? Yeah, she doesn't fit here. I mean, she's clean looking, you know, and stuff and uh, didn't fit to be in there in the jungle. Um, but, you know, crack cocaine is uh, very addictive and people do anything for it. Now, were well, the ethnicities different? Were they all the same ethnicity? Um, Indian and Native American. Olivia Smith was a Native American. Uh, TJ was uh, half white, half uh, African American, and so was uh, Denise, half white. Okay, interesting. So we see, okay, so a little bit of a pattern there, not as much. Age differences were quite a bit. They had almost a decade apart each. Yeah, yeah. But what they had all in common was they were both, uh, they, they were all three of them were uh, in the drugs. To drugs, that was the minimum. In, in well, in the crack cocaine, um, stuff. and uh, crack cocaine, and um, I know Olivia and uh, and Denise, they're also drinking very heavily. In fact, when I was tracking down Denise, I had to go to all these bars downtown Seattle. Yeah, she was here that night. Yeah, she was here that night. Yeah, but wouldn't serve her. She was drunk, she was nasty. And they would tell me, yeah, she'd come in here and somebody would be really quiet. And she smoked these, these uh, European cigarettes, you know. These people would tell me yeah, that she thinks she was such hot shit. And wouldn't talk to people or talk down to the bartenders and stuff. And just sit there and start getting loaded. And then um, then the guys would come around and she'd find out which guys had cocaine. They'd go out, smoke some, come back in, drink some more. And then she'd get nasty. She'd always get nasty with the bar help and stuff. And uh, they'd say, okay, get out of here. You know, you're... You're out of here. <laughs> and, uh, and she thought she was, you know, she thought she was a queen that they're demonstrating how she'd walk and she had this real long, thick ponytail and swinging around. And she'd stop as she's leaving the door and flip, flip off the, the people. And um, it was, it was bizarre. It was bizarre. Yeah. We don't want to ruin it for everybody else too. We got so much more on this story. Michael, what was the one thing, you know, you interviewed him. Uh, what's, what, anything that stood out for you during your interviews with him? Um, well, he contacted me. Uh, he was in jail for a robbery. And he called me up, as we have some people call you up, and he wanted to get out of jail. He's in jail for like an armed robbery. 
Well, you ain't gonna. He goes, I'll tell you about that girl because I, I was up there when she got killed. I was with the guy who killed her. I said, yeah, uh, who, yeah, who was the guy we were with? He gives you some name of some guy that we hunted down and it was all bullshit. Um, he goes, you, I, I'll tell you something that's not in the paper though. You never retrieved her purse, did you? And he was right. We never got her purse. He goes, this, this kind of purse she had. And so you get me out of jail here. I'll take you to where that purse was at. I'll get you her purse and I'll tell you who the guy was. And uh, so we were playing that game for a little while. And then um, finally, after we pulled a couple st stunts, making stuff up and I knew it was bullshit, he called apologetics and we took him out of jail. And uh, he brought me to the, he brought me to the jungle and almost right where Denise was at found. And he goes, yeah, it was right around here and stuff. And her, I said, which way was her head pointed? This way and her feet this way. And he goes, matter of fact, which sometimes she'll send to you. Um, there was a, uh, there was a, a beer can. It was impaled on a tree. And I hit my, I got up and I hit my head. I said, mother, uh, hit my head on it. Well, we got a picture of that. When we, when we were processing the crime scene, I told uh, one of the detectives, take a picture of that can of beer, that beer can impaled there. He goes, why? We got all these enough pictures already. I said, maybe it'll come on handy. Well, so I knew he was at the scene. I knew he was there just from, from about that beer can being up there. And um, so that, that, that's, how, that's how it truly was. It's funny. So it's little things like that sometimes that'll really get you, you know, but he got the little thing to get me going by saying that we didn't get the purse. And um, which we never really did ever find it. He ended up throwing it in a sewer or something like that. Oh, man. It's amazing how the, even the smallest little things, a beer can stuck in a tree, can make all yeah. the difference in the world. And you just kept, you know, I took him out of jail, myself and uh, a couple of detectives, and uh, every day for like about three weeks straight. And so some, some weekends I wouldn't take him out. I had to be home because I was working, you know, 15 hour days every day, you know, for months. Um, the money is good, you know, but after all, you just, you know, oh man, I just got, I got to get away from this guy, you know, I got to get off of this case. Um, one time it was on, on a Labor Day or Memorial Day, um, I was checking my phone messages and he'd call me up all the time, all the time he's calling me. And I get this message, he said, hey, uh, Mikey, Mike, he's calling me Mikey, Mike, Mikey, Mike, uh, this is chilly, yeah, it's a holiday, you're probably off today. Well, uh, I just wanted, you know, tell you, have a nice holiday, man. I'll see you. Uh, see you tomorrow. So I, I played the played the recording for my wife. I said, "Now, when was the last time a serial murderer told you to have a nice day, huh?" And, uh, <laughs> well, he's about what now? He's fifty-seven, fifty-eight. Fifty-eight years old now. Yeah. When's the last time you spoke with him? I spoke on the uh, the day I retired. Um, the day before I retired, I went to a. Uh, I had to go interview another murderer and uh, the penitentiary. And I said, I'm gonna see, see Chile. So they brought him in. He gained about, you know, I hadn't seen him in 20 years. He gained about 40 pounds. He set up those big old, big glasses, you know. And he's calling me Mikey Mike all the time. Mikey Mike, yeah. 
He goes, yeah, where's your, he goes, oh, I see you dressed nice. I always dressed in a suit and all that kind of stuff. And um, he goes, yeah, you always dress, you always dress sharp, man. I got to say that I used to dress sharp too, man. I used to dress up like that, which I know was bullshit. He never, he always had fatigues on and stuff like that. But he pictured himself as that, as a kind of a dapper dude. So uh, I said, I'm just trying, I knew I'd come visit you, Chili. So I wanted to talk to you. And he goes, uh, where's your buddy Steger? It's called Steiger. He's called him Steger. I said, I, I said he's working another case, but uh, he can't make any sense of regards. Yeah, I bet he does. He didn't. He didn't like Floyd very much. Um, he, gravitated, <laughs> he gravitated toward me, and uh, which, for for whatever reason, uh, when he confessed, uh, he confessed. Uh, he first confessed to me, and that was um, we were going to go out to the jungle. And uh, he was gonna show us where some other bodies were buried. And we'd bring him up, we'd bring him up there, give him a cup of, he called it a cappuccino. Like, you, you want some coffee? I give him a cappuccinos, Mikey, Mike. And we get him, I give him a magazine, I have a Sports Illustrated or something, you know. And uh, he'd sit down there, give him cigarettes, he'd smoke, read magazines. So those guys, I'll get that in jail, in county jail. And uh, give him his coffee or his cappuccino. And he was happy as luck. He's out of jail. Guys that are sitting in county jail, they're bored. They're bored, jealous. There's no, they don't do any, they don't have any jobs. You know, they get fat because they get the three meals a day. They get maybe 30 minutes to go exercise. And uh, most county jails don't have weights anymore. There's no cigarettes in county jail anymore, which is kind of a, it's a good, bad thing for us. So now I get these guys that go, I just go talk to guys that say, well, you ain't saying nothing. I go, okay, do you smoke? Yeah, I smoke. And I go, hey, would you want to come, come with me? Well, why do you ask me if I smoke? I said, well, if you come with me, I'm going to bring you back over to my office. I just want to talk about this, what happened. You can, I'll give you some smokes, get a can of soda if you want, you know. Yeah, right, man. I, I want to tell you what happened. They just want to have cigarettes. <laughs> so that works out pretty good. You know? So I let them smoke to their heart's content, you know. Same thing with chili. You know, he'd sit there and he'd smoke away, and uh, read his read his magazine. And uh, so we're going to get him out of jail, and uh, we're going to go take another little visit. We're doing the whole three weeks, and he says to me, he says, "Mikey, Mike, I'm tired. I'm tired of doing all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I killed them bitches, and that also bitch uh, that that Livia Smith too." First, I didn't connect the Olivia Smith case to his. And oh. uh, so I walked out and told my partner to gagged, and he's walked around getting ready to go out to the field to go look for more bodies. I said, he just confessed to me. And um, call Steiger if he's at the dentist's office right now and tell him that you better get in here or we're going to start taking statements from him about the murders he did. And then that's how we, that's how, then it, then that's how it went from there. He'd still, wow. do, some, he'd still do some lying because it was the field trip for him, you know. Sure. Now, now every day, now it's more serious. Now every day I'm taking him out, you know, get him his cappuccino, get him hot dogs, all this kind of stuff, and uh, he's eating good. And I'm, and we're dropping him off, you know, in the evening and stuff. Um, see you tomorrow, man. And he called me up every single day, and I, I get 15 messages sometimes. Oh Jesus Christ! I gotta go through every one of these messages. <laughs> um, but it, it worked out in the long run. 
Awesome. An amazing story. People don't realize the, the, the real life of a homicide detective is quite different than what you see on yes. TV, folks. <laughs> it's quite different. Michael, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you for having me. Again, folks, the book, Seattle's Jungle Killer, Michael Sizinski, C-I-E-S-Y-N-S-K-I. I highly recommend it. It's a fascinating story. Like I said, we just touched the tip of the iceberg. You can see it there. If you're listening to us on our podcast, you can get it on Amazon. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can get it on Amazon. Either way, thank you again, Michael, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And I'd like to be on the show again sometime. Oh, absolutely. And thank you, everyone, for listening as well. If you want to support our podcast, make sure to share and subscribe. We truly appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.